Well, what a privilege it is to be here in Wichita to visit with our dear friends, Bob and Joanne Howard, and to be able to attend this church, which is a great church, and it is known in many places in this country and around the world for the witness that you make for our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the bonus to be invited to preach from this very strong and very fine pulpit. And I give you thanks for that opportunity to be with you this day. Hear now the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees and his name was Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How, how can a man be born again? How can he, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. But that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can this be? Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we've seen, but you don't receive the testimony. And if I've told you earthly things and you don't understand them, how can I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but He who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man, and as Moses was lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might be saved. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believed in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent him into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And then from the Gospel of John, the 16th chapter, 
The disciples were listening to Jesus say, a little while and you'll see me no more. A little while and you'll see me. And some of the disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while you will see, not see me. And then again, a little while and you will see me. And because I go to the Father. And they said, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he means. And Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you'll see me, not see me, and a little while later and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has been delivered of the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy of the child that has been born to her. So, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. Hitherto you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy will be full. If you were to approach someone on the street and say to that person that you're a born-again Christian, what do you think the response might be? My guess is the recipient would uh, reflectively take one step back. Might not be discourteous, but might say something like, well, I'm happy for you, all the while trying to exit that conversation. According to a Gallup survey, that's the typical reaction in our culture. Several years ago, the Gallup poll asked this question, would you like to live next door to a born-again Christian? 75% of the respondents said no. Now, why is that? After all, one might assume that the born-again neighbor would be the one that would keep his grass cut in his yard, neat and clean. He'd refrain from shouting obscenities in the middle of the night, might even take care of your dog when you're out on vacation. Why wouldn't the born-again person be the ideal neighbor? So what is it about this born-again language that engenders such a touch of aversion? Well, to some degree, it is because the intellectually elite in this culture 
view very born-again folk as emotionally needy, somewhat unstable individuals, people who, who have a hard time coping with reality and so they escape to religion. Born-again people, people who have been busted, people who feel compelled to talk about it. Who needs to be born again? According to the cultural elites, that's the kind of person who's born again. They've done things that ought not to be mentioned in public. And while mildly titillated, we're just a bit embarrassed by them when they talk about being born again. We associate born-again people with that tent revival group out there on the bypass, not at the country club sipping a glass of Merlot. In fact, our stereotype would say that born-again folk, they don't enjoy that kind of libation. In fact, they don't enjoy much of anything else because according to that thing, they're on the right side of the morality curve, the spectrum that's largely composed of don'ts. Don't drink, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. Is that your picture of the born-again folk? Then take a good look at Nicodemus. The person to whom Jesus said, you must be born again. He's about to blow your stereotype right out of the window. Nicodemus is no backwoods brawler. He's that well-born guy who went to the Friends School in Washington, D.C., and he earned his master's degree from Harvard and his Ph.D. from Yale, and he knows how to seat a lady, and he knows to put his napkin in his lap at the beginning of the meal, and he knows to speak well, and his rhetoric includes the Wall Street Journal and Shakespeare. That's Nicodemus. John tells us he is a ruler of the Jews. And not only that, he's the head of the Sanhedrin. You don't get any higher than the head of the Sanhedrin. He's a prominent scholar, a learned man, a teacher. And if he's emotionally needy, we don't get any clue of that from Scripture. Nicodemus, you must be born again? Now note, Jesus appro he approaches Jesus at night. I do not assume that he does that because he's on the run. Quite to the contrary, Nicodemus is here on a mission. And he's not about to conduct this mission on common ground. He wants no interruption. He's choosing the nighttime as the best time to ensure himself of a private audience with Jesus. 
And note the language that he uses when addressing Jesus. Rabbi, he says. Teacher. You see, this is a learned man engaging a learned man. This is a collegial greeting. This is CEO to CEO, professor to professor, rabbi to rabbi. He's greeting Jesus as a member of the in-group, the consortium, the fraternity. Note something else about his language. He uses the plural. Rabbi, we know that you are from God because nobody does the things that you do unless God is with him. Hear that? We? That's another clue that Nicodemus is on a mission, that he has an agenda, that he's been dispatched. He is representing a, com a, a consortium here, a group, or at least a part of a group. Now consider the context of this nighttime conversation. <clears throat> Jesus has earned quite a reputation by this time. <clears throat> He's created quite a stir. You remember that he drew an endorsement from a fellow named John the Baptist down on the River Jordan. John the Baptist was no private figure. He was very public. Everybody knew about John the Baptist. And here suddenly this Noteworthy person, John the Baptist, has endorsed this Jesus. And then also note that Jesus appeared at a wedding at a place called Cana, and it was widely reported that he turned water into wine. Now, can you imagine what the professionally religious must have thought about all that? And they couldn't ignore it because Jesus' activity was the talk of the town. And so the parishioners were contacting the preacher and they were saying, hey, Reverend, what do you make of this guy named Jesus? I mean, he is really stirring things up around here. What's your assessment of him? What do you think? Now, the clergy folk must have conducted meetings into the middle of the night over that subject, going over Jesus' pedigree, discussing his credentials, analyzing each report from the front, parsing every phrase that Jesus was, was reported to have said, considering the nuances of every act that was reported. You see, this was rich material for the priests and the temple associates and the theologians and the pious and the wise and the otherwise. 
And one might expect that the tall steeple crowd would not have been of one mind about this Jesus. Some probably thought he was a charlatan, an imposter, a crowd pleaser, an itinerant celebrity, more show than substance. We may as well assume there were plenty of detractors, skeptics, naysayers in that cloister. And of course, Jesus would have been summarily dismissed by the institutionally inclined. Denominational loyalists who go with a hierarchical flow, who want to make no waves kind of celebrity, who want a cleric who long ago checked his mind at the Sanhedrin's door, no courage, rejecting out of hand any perceived threat to the institutionalized religion. But in that clergy crowd, there had to be others who thought Jesus merited a second look. And these would have been those with a penchant for evidence-based analysis, outside-the-box thinkers, whose reflection was a cut above ministerial mediocrity. And they would have said to their colleagues, now wait a minute here. We have to think this thing through. You see, what this out-of-town rabbi has done cannot be so easily dismissed. I mean, his grasp of the scripture and his teachings, they are prescient. And the things that he has done, we have as a matter of record. We have it on good authority, sworn testimony from the wine steward that those jars actually did contain wine. This is not a time for reaction. This is a time for research. This is a time for reflection. Far from rejecting this stranger, we had better find out more about him. In fact, we had better develop a relationship. Even better, an alliance. Because you see, he can do some things that we can't do. We need to go to the source. We need to find out how he does these things so that we can elevate the association. Might even be noticed by the General Assembly. And that voice would have been the minority. It always is the minority. 
For you see, every group gravitates toward mediocrity. Every group seeks the lowest common denominator where the edges are filed away, where controversy is avoided, and they create a colorless, bland-like, oatmeal-like organization that welcomes peace. And that's what you get if you poll the majority. It's that minority voice that makes the creative dissonance that ultimately moves the organization up a notch. Every savvy businessman knows that if he's comfortable making widgets, and he makes widgets day after day, but all of a sudden, a stranger comes in with a new and improved widget. You better get to know him. Learn from him. Merge with him. Or the day will come when that new improved widget will run your comfortably created widget right out of business. Nicodemus' nighttime we is that minority we. He's here on behalf of a perceptive few who see in Jesus something that they cannot explain. And instead of viewing the inexplicable, as a threat to be avoided, they dare to seek its source. We know, says Nicodemus, that you are from God because no other explanation exists for what you're doing. Jesus, you have something that we don't, and we want it. We, we who have come so far, we have taken religion to a very high stage. We have ordered our society and we've set minimum standards and we've written the liturgy and we've composed our cantatas and we've regulated our rituals and we've established the faith and we've made it culturally acceptable and it's a good thing to go to church and it's socially prominent to go to church and we've done all of this and we've done everything we could and yet we see in you something that exceeds our piety. And we want a piece of it. So I'm here tonight 
to negotiate. You know Nicodemus. He enters this room regularly. <clears throat> He's come so far. He's come so very far in his drive and his attempt to get closer to God. But he's restless. Oh, he doesn't show it. He's much too discreet to show it. But you know it's there. He senses, he, this religious regular, he senses that there's something yet out there that exceeds his piety. And he wants it. Now, there's plenty of options for him in his search to find this more. Maybe it'll be relationships, he says. We'll just create the perfect relationship. We'll find just the ideal partner and together we'll soar into this higher plateau. And so we find all kinds of linkages, some good, some not so good, some as good as it gets. But at the end of the day, there's that empty feeling that no matter how good the relationship was, it just doesn't quite fill it. Well, then Betty Beauty will do it. Yeah, that, we're already somewhat beautiful, but we can always improve on the product. And beside that, we're worth it. And so well, there are many things we know that can be fixed. There's a sag here and a sag there and a wart here and a wart there. And a, there's all kinds of problems that we got to deal with. We'll go to the cosmetologist and we'll work it out and we will do everything we can. We'll go to the gymnasium. We'll do everything we can to create beauty. And yes, we may be pretty beautiful, but in our greatest moment of greatest concern, we know that there's something yet still lacking. Ah, excellence. That's what we'll pursue, excellence. And so we'll study and we'll practice and we'll hone our skills and we'll climb the corporate ladder and we'll win the marathon and we'll beat the S&P benchmark and we'll fly the kite and we'll sail the boat into stormy waters and we'll dance until our feet can't touch the ground and then we'll fall exhausted. And empty. Nicodemus, you're dissatisfied. Not because you've done so badly, but because you've done so well. You've done better than most. 
But here's your problem. You've done all that you can do. And your need exceeds your grasp. You do know Nicodemus, don't you? Nicodemus? Now, what Nicodemus learns in this nocturnal encounter is that the move we seek is from the realm in which we were born to another realm. We have exhausted the assets that come with our birth. We have burned up everything that DNA would give us. And there are no more resources here. And that's when we hear the phrase, you must be born again. Now, on first hearing, that's not a welcome message. You mean I've got another task? I've got to climb another rung on that ladder? Another feat to accomplish? I'm exhausted. I've been doing that all my life. And even if I had the energy to undertake it yet one more time, how can I do this one? How can I be born again? That's impossible. I didn't birth myself the first time. One does not birth oneself. I can't do it again. And that is precisely the point, Nicodemus. You didn't do it the first time. Someone who is not you birthed you. And that woman suffered great pain in birthing you. So it is, Nicodemus that your entry into the realm you seek will not be your own doing. You've been seeking improvement, an improvement you can do. But you need to be born, and you don't do birth. Tim Keller puts it this way. Consider the possibility that you're an apple farmer and you love apple trees and you do pretty well with apple trees. You produce some really good crops of apples. 
But what you really want is peaches. Now, how are you going to get peaches? Well, you can fertilize those apple trees, you can create an irrigation system, you can prune the apple trees, you can clean up that orchard and make it, make it a show place. You can do lots of things for those apples and they will improve your apples. You'll have some great apples, but if what you want is peaches, there is no improvement on this apple orchard that's gonna give you peaches. See, if you want peaches, you've got to have a whole new birth. Now, Nicodemus, you're no bad apple. In fact, you're a very good apple. You're very, very good at what you do. But here's the irony. The better you are in the apple business, the farther away you are from peaches. In fact, Nicodemus, your success is killing you. So when Jesus tells you you need to be born again, He's not telling you to work harder on apples. It's what you've been told all your life. And how's it working for you? Now, if you could not birth yourself the first time, and you cannot birth yourself again, how's this going to work? Let's think about it. Someone else's pain brought you into this world. Does it not logically follow that someone else's pain will birth you into this world? And who's going to do that for you. Now John does not tell us how that nighttime conversation ended. He doesn't tell us that Nicodemus was born again. But at the very end of the gospel, He gives us a clue. Golgotha. The focal point of the greatest pain that has ever existed in this world. Golgotha. The prisoner is drawn in and they have slashed his back with whips until it is built to shreds. They put a crown on his head that has thorns in it that are digging into his brow. There's blood gushing from the spear point on his side. 
from the from the hands and his feet where the nails had been driven in, and he cries out, "My God, my God, why hast thou persecuted me?" That is pain. That is excruciating pain. Excrucious. You know the root of that word, excruciating, excrucious. It is cross. Now note what follows that travail of pain. That labor pain. Who's going to clean up the mess? Who's going to take the corpse off the cross? Wash his bloody body, wrap it in linens, put ointments on it, prepare it for burial. Who's going to do that? The disciples have all run away, and they wouldn't have done it if they were here, because in that culture, that's not something men do. Men were not allowed to touch such a body as this. This would not be something men would do. Women would do it, maybe, or the slaves might do it, but there's nobody here to do it. Who's going to do this thing? Who's going to deal with this dirty corpse? And who would risk doing such a thing? This prisoner died a very public death right on the side of the street. The Romans are watching. The temple guard is watching. They're taking names. The Sanhedrin, yes, that powerful Sanhedrin of which Nicodemus was a member, that Sanhedrin is hovering at a distance watching ready to view what's going to happen next. Who's going to make the next move? Who is going to publicly identify with this Jesus? This is a dangerous, dangerous moment. Who's going to do anything here? Two men appear. There's men. They show up with some water and some cleaning rags, some ointments, some white linen. One of them, we know who he is. The guy's name is, is Joseph, and he has a family that has a family tomb, and he offers to have Jesus' body put in the tomb. That's Joseph. Who's that other guy? The one who publicly releases this limp body from the cross, who, whose blood-stained clothing now will permanently identify, will prove to the Sanhedrin, the temple guards, the Romans, that he was here. the one who publicly and permanently identifies with this Jesus as he holds his limp body and cradles it in his arms. Who is he? 
That man, dear friends, is Nicodemus. And so, if you've been working real hard on your religion, you've been praying hard, you've been singing hard, you've been doing oh so many good works, you've been practicing your piety like a gymnasium trainer. And if you find that you're still not quite there. Look again at that cross. See that labor of love. See the pain that is borning someone new. Is that someone you? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.